Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Sometimes a single word can be loaded with meaning. Mom. Dad. Darling. Champion. Failure. Single words can be so important that Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As we continue our series on the titles of Messiah Jesus in Isaiah 9, verse 6, both of the words that make up this third title are loaded with a wealth of meaning, encouragement, and hope. The title is Everlasting Father. For joining us today for season three, episode number 51 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. One year when I was home from college on Christmas break, I asked my pastor, what does it mean in the Isaiah 9 Christmas text that Jesus is the everlasting father? How can the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, be the first person of the Trinity, God the Father? He gave me an answer that as a pastor, I have never forgotten. He said, I don't know. I realize that pastors don't have to have all the answers. As I have dug into the word meanings and background of this messianic title of Jesus, it's become clear that this text is not using the Trinitarian title Father for the Messiah. Rather, it is portraying the nature of his kingship. Keeping this truth in mind, we can identify four characteristics of his messianic kingship contained in the title Everlasting Father. Let's begin with the word Father. King Jesus is not just a king who rescues us from oppression. He is a king who wants you and me to have a personal relationship with him. NIC commentator John Oswald observes that in the ancient Near East, many kings claimed to be a father to their peoples. This claim, whether true or not, was an attempt to convince the people of the king's benevolent protection and care for them. Messiah Jesus' rule, says Isaiah, will be like that of a father leading his home. First of all, personal. Another pair of commentators, Kyle and Dalich, point out that the title Everlasting Father designates the Messiah as the tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provider for his people. Messiah Jesus would be that kind of king, personally engaged with his people. More than one president of the United States was known for telling his staff that his children always had direct access to him. The Messiah would not be a ruler separated from his people by the veil in the temple. He would not remain set apart, cut off from direct access. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, the bond that King Jesus would have with his subjects was to be so personal that Jesus would later say to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus spoke of this personal relational knowledge of each other in his prayer to the Father when he said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
The concept that abundant life is having a personal relationship with Christ radically changed my life in high school. I grew up in a church era that not only used the King James Bible with all its comeths and goeths and these and thous, but such language was also used in prayer. Thank you that thou listeneth to us. To put a positive spin on this experience, I learned about the transcendence of God, his greatness, his awesomeness, his holiness, his otherness. But it was Young Life and the J.B. Phillips modern paraphrase of the Bible that taught me about the imminence of God, that I could have a personal relationship with him. I learned that Messiah Jesus wanted an everyday relationship with me that was just as real as his relationship with Peter, James, and John when he walked to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Back then, I memorized the Good News translation of Psalm 63. The more I remember that King Jesus is the kind of commanding officer that a father is, one who wants to enjoy me personally, the more Psalm 63 comes alive for me. Oh God, you are my God, and I long for you. My whole being desires you. My soul is thirsty for you, like a dry, worn-out, waterless land. Let me see you in the sanctuary. Let me see how mighty and glorious you are. Your constant love is better than life itself, and so I will praise you. I will give you thanks as long as I live. I will raise my hands to you in prayer. My soul will feast and be satisfied, and I will sing glad songs of praise to you. As I lie in my bed, I remember you. All night long, I think of you because you have always been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. I cling to you, and your hand keeps me safe. King Jesus is not just a king who rescues you from oppression. He is a king who wants you to have a personal relationship with him. Secondly, King Jesus is not just a king who rescues us from oppression and has a personal relationship with us. He is also a king who is full of fatherly compassion for us. In studying Isaiah's choice of the word father here, everlasting father, to describe the coming Messiah, it is valuable to see how Isaiah uses the term father in other places in the rest of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 63, for example, when Isaiah is trying to persuade Yahweh to stop holding back mercy from his people, Isaiah writes, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation." The stirring of your inner parts and your compassions are held back from me, for you are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father. A Redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah identifies fatherhood with compassion. The psalmist does as well. He writes, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." The Messianic king, predicted in Isaiah 9-6, will not only rule justly, he will lead and rule with compassion. Jesus remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. Though Isaiah may not know that the Messiah would be the great high priest, his description of Jesus' kingly rule matches that later description. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus never tires of hearing us pour out our frustrations and weaknesses and requests for his strength. He loves being the strength we need in our weaknesses. The compassion of Jesus It draws me to him. I suspect it does to you as well. The compassion of the Messiah is not only seen in his high priestly role, though, but of course it's seen all through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Last week in studying John 9, the story of the man Jesus healed who had been born blind, I noticed two components of Jesus' compassion that I didn't mention last week, the first of which might not seem much like compassion, but let's look at it. Let's turn back to that story. John 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed him, and then he came back, being able to see. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Why did Jesus heal this man in this particular manner? Here's a hint. It was the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees' extreme legalistic tradition forbade spitting on the Sabbath. Specifically, they cautioned that the spit might run downhill and make mud, and making mud is work. If we listen closely as the story unfolds, we discover that as the Pharisees investigate the healing, they are concerned specifically about the mud and the question of who made the mud on the Sabbath. In other words, it appears that Jesus deliberately chose to heal the man in this manner to pick a fight with the Pharisees. I love it. The Pharisees had turned God's revelation about how to walk with him into an oppressive pile of man-made rules, destroying the concept that the essence of God's covenant with his people was love. Yahweh made it clear in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He loves you because he loves you. In response, the covenant obligation of Israel was first to love God back and second to love his image bearers, their neighbors. 
But the Pharisees piled upon the backs of the people a ridiculous number of man-made rules, over 600 in their oral tradition, a legalism so severe that it had perverted the religious leaders into caring more about spit running downhill and making mud than the tragedy of a precious human never having been able to see being given sight. Jesus cared too much for the people hearing the religious representatives of Yahweh pervert the Torah teaching to do nothing. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. The perverted legalism of the religious leaders was destroying the people's understanding of what Israel's covenant of grace with God was all about. These victims pulled on Jesus' heart. He simply could not do nothing about it. So he deliberately confronted the lie that the religion of Moses was about spitting or not on the Sabbath. If Jesus were here in the flesh in our day, I believe his compassion would prevent him from walking past the poisonous ideas of woke subculture that are taking captive the rising generation inside and outside the church. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. And they are the rising generation of kids from today's Christian homes and churches who are being catechized by the social media. They are being taught that gender distinctions are a social construct being imposed on culture by an evil patriarchy, the center of which is biblical Christianity. They are brainwashed into thinking that the problems of the poor are caused by the greedy cultural hegemony of the white, rich capitalists. The delusions shaping the woke movement are so strong that they deny obvious scientific truth, that there are only two sexes, shown by the fact that every one of the 30 trillion cells in the female body is marked XX. The extremely rare intersex birth disorder is not evidence of a new sex category any more than disorders of the cardiac or respiratory system are evidence of new kinds of hearts or lungs. Jesus' compassion caused him to confront bad ideas head on. But Jesus' compassion was not just shown in his courage to pick a fight with those who were victimizing the everyday people of Israel through their false ideas about pleasing God. Jesus shows his compassion for the blind man, not only by healing him, but after healing him. It turns out that Jesus was not the only one who confronted the Pharisees. The blind man was amazingly clear-sighted in his thinking. We read, The Pharisees said to the formerly blind man, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are the disciples of Jesus, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, 
and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. We saw Jesus' compassion in healing a man born blind and in standing up to the false ideas that were destroying the people's understanding of the true Old Covenant faith. Here we see Jesus' compassion in seeking out a man who probably could not seek him out very well, since the blind man had never seen the face of Jesus. The healed blind man's honesty about Jesus had caused him to be thrown out of the synagogue, a fate far worse than meets the eye. It turns out that in that culture, it would result in a person being kicked out not only from the building, but from Jewish life altogether. From this moment on, his parents and friends will have nothing to do with him. He cannot purchase food from any loyal Jew. In his culture, the healed blind man is now persona non grata. But Jesus pursues and finds the formerly blind man and leads him to faith. That is Jesus. And that kind of compassion is what fathers exercise. Jesus, the messianic king who has a father's heart, a heart of fatherly compassion. And third, Messiah Jesus' title, Everlasting Father, also points to his role in shaping our character. Once again, to understand what Isaiah means when he uses the term father to describe the nature of the coming Messiah, we need to see Isaiah's other uses of father in his book. In Isaiah 64, we read his description once again of God as a caring father engaged with his children, but this time focusing on his role of shaping his children. We read, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. We belong to God, and he, like fathers who have children born to them, trains those in his charge. King Jesus is not only committed to a personal relationship with us and a relationship that is full of fatherly compassion, he is also our personal trainer. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Trials and pain are the sharp sculpting tools that RCO uses to shape our character as a potter does his clay. Have you developed the habit of linking the pain in your life to the godly character God might be developing in your life? After first taking your feelings to the Lord, this sucks, Jesus. There is strength in identifying what character trait the Lord might be working on. For example, there's the pain of being taken for granted, not really appreciated, which is the opportunity for the purity of our heart, selfless love to grow. Being discouraged by the way sin seems to be triumphing everywhere is the opportunity to deepen hope. 
the certain confidence in the good news of the gospel that one day everything that is broken will be fixed. I've been trying to deal with my anger and frustration at things that go wrong, obstacles to checking off the items on my to-do list. Well, now I'm on my A-game, which is far too rare, and remember James 1, verses 2 through 4, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends, and you will find you have become men of mature character. When I remember that verse, I smile inside, remembering that my approach to pleasing God is getting my to-do list done, but God's approach to pleasing Him is looking at me and seeing Jesus in my character. If you are married, you live in what Martin Luther called the school for character. If your wife fails to meet your need for respect, for example, it's the opportunity to build your self-worth by remembering that God delights in you, even if she doesn't right now. When your wife's flaws make your life harder, It is the chance to remember that in Paul's description of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13, patience is the very first attribute mentioned. The master you follow, Messiah Jesus, is a CO who is like a potter shaping clay. He is your personal character coach. Our fourth and final observation about Jesus' messianic title, Everlasting Father, is that like the title we looked at last week, Mighty God, it points to Jesus' divinity. As one commentary reads, the third name, Everlasting Father, springs out of the second, Mighty God, for what is divine, Mighty God, must be eternal. The title Eternal Father designates him, however, not only as the possessor of eternity, but as the tender, faithful, wise trainer, as we saw a moment ago, guardian and provider for his people, even in eternity. By pointing to the eternality of Messiah Jesus' fatherly rule, Isaiah again hints that the Messiah would be God himself. This becomes clearer in Isaiah 63, 16, which says, You, O Yahweh, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. To say that Yahweh is Israel's Father and that the coming King will be the everlasting Father is a way of telegraphing that the Messiah would be God himself. The Messianic title, the Mighty God, looked at last week, plus the title Father, plus the adjective everlasting, all point to the deity of Jesus. In a culture that loves Jesus' teaching about social justice, many like Jesus, but want to put him in the category of a great teacher like Gandhi, Confucius, or Buddha. But no other religious teachers claimed to be divine. In sharp contrast, Jesus unambiguously and repeatedly claimed deity. In the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And... Before Abraham was, I am, taking to himself the name Yahweh. In Mark 2, Jesus pardoned sins in his own name, and the scribes call this blasphemy, insisting that only God can forgive sins. Jesus constantly applies prophecies about Israel's God to himself. The point wasn't lost on his enemies, who took this as blasphemy and sought for that reason to kill him. 
if Jesus claimed to be God and wasn't, he was either lying or was deranged. In both cases, he could not be a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, of course, makes this clear in his trilemma argument in Mere Christianity. He writes, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. To summarize this episode, giving the Messiah the title Everlasting Father does not conflict with teaching about the Trinity, that God the Father and God the Son are two different, distinct beings. Rather, it is describing the nature of Jesus' kingly rule. We saw first that his rule is fatherlike in that it is personal in nature, Jesus being a CO who delights to walk personally with his followers. We saw secondly that Jesus is a CO who has the compassionate heart of a father. We noted that his compassion led him to confront the false ideas shaping the everyday people's understanding of the Torah and worship of Yahweh. We considered the challenge to Christ followers today to stand up to the lies of a woke culture shaping the next generation, even though doing so will brand us transphobic, homophobic, racist, conservative, out of touch, bigots. We further noted Jesus' compassionate heart, which led him to track down the blind man that he had healed, who had been thrown out of the synagogue to offer him the gift of eternal life. Our third observation about the fatherly nature of Messiah Jesus' kingly rule was that it is like a potter who uses sharp tools to shape his vessel. Our CO similarly uses pain to make us into vessels of honor for Jesus' sake. Finally, we noted that everlasting father points to the divinity of the Messiah, as does the title Mighty God. In a culture where Jesus is popular, but not Christianity, we have numerous opportunities to guide lost folks to see that believing Jesus is a great moral teacher is an untenable position, and one that Jesus himself precluded. For further prayerful thought, number one, what are the differences that a person would normally have in his relationship with his king and with his father? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Some of you have graciously asked how you might support the podcast financially that would enable us to reach more men with it. In the show notes, there's a link to enable you to make an online contribution should you desire to do so. Next week, we complete our four-week series, Loving Jesus More Because I Know Him Better, as we look at the significance of Jesus' title from Isaiah 9, The Prince of Peace. Why that title? What does it mean to us? 
Why did God want us to identify Jesus with that specific title? For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. Podcast.